about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. The second Bible reading continues on in Mark chapter 15 from verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days... Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is to be with you this morning. Um, we love taking Easter and whoa, we love taking Easter and Christmas really seriously at NIAC, taking time over these moments uh, to remember and celebrate what God has done. Uh, And so it's really good that you can be with us. If you're new, a really warm welcome. We hope you have a great day. If you're here last night, welcome back. I realised at the end of the service that I had forgotten to give people warning that we would turn the lights off at the end, and that was probably quite awkward. So well done for coming back uh, after getting out in the darkness. Um, I don't have any slides, so I wonder if we might just put a blank slide up, Evan, if that's possible, so that... Uh, It's just, we can focus on the text. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this chance to read and think about the death 
of Jesus. We ask you to enlighten our hearts and minds in the knowledge of him. Amen. The account of the death of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark aims to draw our attention to one thing especially. The striking passivity of Jesus in the face of his killers. This inaction, this passivity, lies behind the traditional name for this story as the Passion of Christ, which you might be familiar with from either highbrow musical pieces or lowbrow Mel Gibson movies. The Passion of Christ doesn't mean his strong emotion, like we often mean by the word passion, it means his passive suffering. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus' passivity stands out shockingly. In chapter 15, from verse 1 through to verse 33, Jesus is totally inactive. The only things he does are to refuse to act. In verse 2, when Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? He answers by deferring to Pilate, you have said so. He refuses to speak for himself. In verse 23, when he's offered wine mixed with myrrh, he does not take it. He refuses completely to assert himself in any way. He's utterly passive. He does not even carry his own cross. And so people just do things to him. The chief priests and elders get him convicted despite the pathetic flimsiness of their case. The crowd condemn him. Pilate uses Jesus to satisfy the crowd. The soldiers abuse him terribly. They dress him up, they beat him, they spit on him, they mock him, and then they strip him. And all the while, Jesus is utterly passive, a mere body to be handled and discarded, a punching bag, a sack of bones and humiliation, hardly even a person. At the actual moment of crucifixion, Jesus' inactivity comes into special focus as those who pass heap scorn on his powerlessness and inaction. Come down from the cross and save yourselves, they taunt him. Save yourself, they taunt him. He can't save himself, they mock. Go on, they say, do something. Do something, act, you can't. And he he doesn't act. You know, this passivity is even more striking and shocking when this passage is read in the whole context of Mark's gospel. Because from its very first moments, Mark's gospel is all about the agency, the power and action of Jesus. If you have never read it, or you haven't recently read Mark's gospel, then I urge you to go and do it. You will see this. You'll see how Jesus bursts onto the scene in Mark as a figure wielding authority. He is the actor striding through the narrative decisively and powerfully, calling the shots at every single point. He's always 10 steps ahead. He knows his enemy's next move and he floors the opposition at every turn. His words shatter rigid fixtures of power and privilege. His actions cut through prejudice 
and break open oppression. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He gives the blind back their sight. The forces of evil literally flee at his command. Nature itself bows before him. He calms storms and feeds thousands with almost nothing. If there is anything certain at all about Jesus, as Mark tells his story, it is that he acts. He came with a decisiveness and clarity and power that was like a tsunami, unavoidable, unstoppable, utterly compelling. And then suddenly, in chapter 15, he goes limp. He just stops, utterly passive, and people just do whatever they want to him. And the irony is electric. Because at this very same moment, people finally start calling him a king. Jesus has talked a lot about the kingdom of God in Mark, endlessly. And it has gradually become clear that he understood himself to be the Messiah, the promised anointed one from God. But it is only now in chapter 15, when he comes into contact with Rome, that Jesus starts being called a king. He's never been called this in Mark, and now suddenly, six times it comes up in our passage, six times. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? What shall I do with the king of the Jews? He says to the crowd. Hail, king of the Jews, the soldiers shout in mockery. The charge on the cross reads, the king of the Jews. And those who pass by insult him in the same way, the king of Israel, they say. And yet at the very moment that Jesus is finally heralded as king, he seems less like a king than ever. All through the gospel, he has been kingly, authority, power, wisdom. But now, that has all vanished, and he's just a body being tossed about by others, utterly vacant of agency. Until the very last moment. At the final moment, there is a sudden explosion of agency from Jesus as he actually dies. Did you notice it? At noon, Mark tells us in verse 33, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, and at three in the afternoon, after three more hours of utter passivity, Jesus cried out, in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice the loud voice, won't you? Suddenly, he is on the scene again, powerfully present, speaking to God and crying out a quotation from Psalm 22 to show how he interprets what is happening here. He's, he's taking charge of the situation once more. And then at the very last moment, Mark tells us that with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. How shocking that is. He doesn't die with a whimper. He doesn't go quietly, drifting off at some indeterminate point in the afternoon. No, at the moment, he might most have been expected to be passive, 
defeated, suddenly he's back. He shouts his dying breath. He dies, not passive, but active. The last moments of Jesus in Mark's gospel, they grab you and shake you as the agency of Jesus suddenly reappears with stunning clarity. And this last moment makes all the difference because it shows that the passivity of Jesus as he is tried and crucified, it was purposeful and powerful. We see at the end that Jesus had known and had been in command of what he was doing the whole time. He had chosen to give way. He had permitted himself to be slandered and brutalized. We see that all of his kingly power had been given to the task of submitting to injustice and the power of evil. This refusal to act, it too was his powerful, decisive work. In fact, this was the moment of Jesus' most kingly work. Because it was the moment when he saved his people. The moment when by submitting to death, he broke the power of sin and evil forever. This is my body given for you, Jesus had said the night before. This is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. What Mark shows us in his account of the death of Jesus is not a man merely overcome by the power of others, a mere victim. No, this is a man in command. Jesus' passivity at the end was him exercising his authority to lay down his life for the salvation of the world. At the very end of the account, Mark shows us the reaction of a centurion posted to guard Jesus' cross. Perhaps the nearest witness to these last moments. I'm sure you noticed it as it was read. It is a reaction as unexpected as it is profound. Verse 39, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. What could this centurion have seen that led him to this extraordinary conclusion? A conclusion, let's remember, about a man who has just been executed. What could he have seen except the power of Jesus' agency at that last moment? The power and glory of his laying down his life the shocking rending of his relationship with his father, the majesty of this final perfect act of salvation. The centurion's declaration throws the burden of response to make a response back onto us. What, Mark's account asks us, what will you make of this man? What will you make of this action? Can we join with the centurion in confessing that here, in the darkness, 
and the muck of blood and asphyxiation, the battered and humiliated body and this last explosion of faith and power, here we see one who was the Son of God. We have a choice. The alternative is to see all this as a delusion. To believe that Jesus was, in the end, a grand, tragic fool. A man of extraordinary talent and power who could have done so much good, but instead let himself be undone by nasty, vicious idiots. What a blunder! we could think. We will have to think. What a blunder for Jesus to have gone passive like this, to have let this happen to him, when clearly, even in human terms, he could have stopped it. A mere word to Pilate could have done it. The feeblest self-defense would have changed this. If we take that path of thinking of Jesus as deluded, Let us be clear what it will mean. It will mean we are left with the world as it was. We will be left with the world run by pilots, with the corruption of the chief priests and the vindictiveness of the crowds, with the viciousness of the soldiers and no hope beyond it. Because where are all the ordinary decent people in this story? Huh? Where are the forces of good and justice? I mean, there were ordinary decent people in that time. It's not like they were missing from the world. So where were they in this story? Well, they aren't there. They don't feature. When it comes to the crunch, they prove to be empty, weightless, utterly inadequate to the task. Are they any real ground for hope? in the face of the sheer indifference to good and evil of Pilate, in the face of the hunger of humanity for violence and to tear apart what is good and true and beautiful. If Jesus is merely a tragic fool, then we are left with the world in all its brokenness and with our own sins that make it that way. But Jesus was not a fool. Jesus was not a fool. And we know it by the power and authority we see here at the end. Just as the centurion saw it. This man who cried out in a loud voice showing us that all along he had been in command. Never merely overtaken, overcome, He was no fool. Now, he was the king. He is the king. The one by whose power and authority God's salvation and the forgiveness of sins broke upon this world like a tidal wave, like an earthquake, like a flash of lightning. He laid down his life, gave himself over to the power of evil, so that you and I might have hope and freedom. Surely, this man 
was and is the Son of God. Won't you join in the centurion's confession today and forever? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as the Son of God who laid down your life for our salvation. We trust in that and not in ourselves and not in our own capacity. We trust in you. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.